And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host and fearless leader, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick, who is not here. He'll be at the end with his robot voice. But in his place, we have with us Brendan McCaskill of Open Owl Studios, formerly Oom Games and general wizard of the crowdfunding space. Welcome to the show, Brendan. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew, and good to be here. Hey, hey, Sean. Happy to chat some crowdfunding. Yes. So, you know, one of the uh, things I'd love our listeners to know about you right away is your history. But even before that, really in your expertise and why they should listen. But before that, I wanted to just kind of frame the topic. So we uh, together have experience. You have been a client of ours. You have a lot of experience in the industry with multiple very successful games um, that have raised well into the six figures and seven figures now with Stone Saga. And I am really excited to kind of glean from you, number one, about you know, what's it take to be successful on that level? Together, we we ran into all sorts of challenges in regard to distribution and, the, you know, rather maybe ramifications from decisions made yeah. for distribution. And then I'm really, I really uh, selfishly, I want to know uh, what you're doing as a team and a company to pivot. We're going to talk about all this stuff. And then you have this really cool project called flgstore.com, which is basically a direct to retail, almost like you're becoming a distributor through this site where publishers can sign up and sell their Yeah, products. you know, a, a little more like like a marketplace, right? Um, yeah. So it's it's just creating a, a hub, but yeah, yeah, we, we can get into it. Yeah, and, and so I'm really interested to, to learn because one of the biggest issues in the hobby industry, the way that I see it, is the, the distribution model that distributor buys a bunch of games and sells to their thousands of retailers that can be the land of milk and honey for certain publishers, mm-hmm. but it's very hard to get into. It's very difficult to kind of stay in and there are a myriad of problems, but it's what I consider the biggest bottleneck of the industry really. And with this uh, venture that you're on right now, you're aiming to solve that problem in a different way. And it's, I think it's very innovative. So, but before we get into all of that, tell our listeners about yourself and your experience and kind of where you come from. Yeah. You know, it's great to be here. I, I have been a fan of crowdfunding for, I I don't know, maybe 15 years. I I backed my first project on Kickstarter like a long time ago and we're just interested in, in getting into the space for, for the longest time. And, uh, and about seven, eight years ago, I was, uh, I was working a different job full time. And, you know, I was into games and I just had an idea just to make a board game and kickstart it. And it was a small project called Last One Standing and basically like a Fortnite board game ripoff clone type thing. Um, but, but, but it was fun. We, you know, we were first to market with that. Ended up like funding, raising, I think like $28,000. I kind of did, did, did the whole project myself. Um, except the art, hired out, hired out the art. And, uh, and it was just, a, you know, it was a great experience. Um, really got to see all the different facets of, you know, making a game, marketing it, getting to mar- like getting to market, like manufacturing, like fulfillment, all of that stuff. And I would say it was actually back when it was a little bit easier and simpler to do stuff like that. But um, and then since then, uh, there was there's a local guy in town um, who who started up a, a board game publishing company. And then he was like, hey, Brendan, if you ever want to make games, you know, come join. 
Um, and so, you know, I ended up joining that. And then that was just over, like, that was almost four years ago now. And uh, since then, um, you know, I've have, have become the, the, the head of the studio and um, we've released yeah, three kind of three big projects on um, on Kickstarter. Uh, Akarios, I think uh, just under a million. And then Mythwind. These are all Canadian numbers. Sorry, I'm a Canadian. So just, like, you know. <laughs> just imagine like a slightly smaller dollar bill with a George Washington that's 80 percent the size. About 80 percent. Yeah. And then we did Mythwind and Stone Saga. It's been a wild ride. And, you know, we're. We're, we're right in the thick of the manufacturing and fulfillment stage of, of Mythwind right now, but, you know, excited about the future. That's fantastic. And, you know, just for, for everybody's edification, I mean, these are, these are not small projects. They're big. They're, they're pretty, pretty large, chunky projects, right? Yeah. So with, you know, with, with the Karyos, I, uh, I was asked by a friend uh, the, the day before we launched, I was like, he was like, Hey, in your wildest dreams, what would success look like? And I was like, you know what? Maybe like a quarter million dollars. That would that was the biggest number uh, I could think about. And then we ended up raising, uh, I think, a quarter million in the first like day or two. And then we we finished with with nine hundred and, and twenty thousand, which is just unreal. And then and then Mythwind, we did I think one point three million. And then uh, Stone Saga was uh, was one point six. And uh, and then you know, plus pledge manager and all, all that jazz. But it's 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 really you know for, for us it's like yeah. it's 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 quite surreal and really our our community I think I think that's you know the, the biggest thing that we can chalk this up to is is just how how cool our community has been how how much kind of trust and you know faith that they have in in us and you know we're we're trying to deliver uh, you know a pretty unique innovative experience in each of our games in regard to your community I, I see in you know just in the doings of of our end of the business where we do a lot of marketing for board game Kickstarter campaigns, yeah. game found campaigns. Uh, when a company makes one game, oftentimes, you know, we see this problem crop up where they make a game of an entirely different sort that people that their, their initial audience doesn't really find exciting. So they have to build a secondary audience to, you know, for that game. But what you've done, it seems, you know, starting with, Stars of Icarios, which was a a large kind of a space opera, like sandboxy game. Yeah. So then you moved into Mythwind. So I I see where you're going, and uh, and unfortunately y- you are wrong. We actually had to get a second audience for Mythwind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the game is is very different than than Stars of Icarios from from theme. You know, like like a number, five um, percent of our uh, Akarios backers were um, are are women, and with Mythwind, we're about forty percent. And a lot has to do with the style of gameplay, the the, the theme. Um, so so drastically different. I think we only had fifteen percent returning backers mm-hmm. from Akarios to Mythwind, which is pretty low, like really low. Um, so and, you're saying uh, if you're single, you should not be playing space themed games. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, something like that. Unless you're, you know, maybe, maybe you're okay being single. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it, it was it was a wildly different theme, but I I think what people actually picked up on was that we we were doing something new in the space with with Mythwind, and and that's really what what captured people's uh, attention, um, and and you know helped us kind of create the new audience. You're, you have quite a creative team because I know with Stone Saga, you, uh, then the insert of the, the actual box that has this cave and, you know, as people adventure, they can sort of leave their mark on 
on the game. And you seem to have a lot of these great ideas that are sort of unique no one's really doing in the space. And even with some of the projects that you're doing, it's, uh, well, it's quite inspiring. I think it, it kind of gives a, a perspective of the people where their headspace needs to be. One thing I, I've been doing, I've been going through a book called The Dice Men by Ian Livingstone mm. and Steve Jackson, founders of Games Workshop. And you'll see it's a very interesting read because it lays out the history of the development of their production company. And one thing you'll, you'll notice is that a lot of the things they got into was out of necessity. It's like they, they wanted to sell games, but there weren't enough retail shops that were taking right. stock of hobby games. So like, okay, we'll create our own games and Games Workshop was created. Then they were selling miniatures. It's like, well, we, we want to sell more miniatures to make it profitable. So uh, let's, instead of selling D&D miniatures to like, you know, small amounts to, to people playing D&D, let's create a war game so that we can sell more miniatures to people who have to mm. build armies. And that's how Warhammer came about. I kind of feel like you're sort of doing the same thing, the same sort of philosophy with like, I see a need in the market, I'm developing this, and or I see that this hasn't been done, so I'm, I'm implementing this in my games. Would that be sort of true to say and sort of your, your frame of mind when developing games and projects? That, you know, the, the first thing is, okay, yes, seeing a need and then being like, well, if nobody else is going to do it, like, I guess we might as well do it. Right. And, and that's, you know, when we get into flgstore.com, the, the need is like, okay, how do we connect with our retailers in a better way? Cause what I see is broken. Nobody else is providing the fix. Okay. Let's go in there with our games. Usually it comes with, there's, there's a core concept that I feel that hasn't been done before in the space, um, or at least hasn't been done well. And then, and then we double down on that core concept and, and then build the game, like build out a game around, sorry, for Mythwind, the, the core concept was could we create a game that has no distinct ending? And and like, you know, if you say that, a game that has no distinct ending, what does that even mean, right? Um, and that's, that's a great question. What does that mean? Um, because that runs like counterintuitive to so many people's board gaming instincts. But it doesn't run counter counterintuitive to people's video game instincts, right? So it's being able to kind of tap in on that Stardew Valley Animal Crossing vibe and then put it into put it into you know something that's uniquely board game and so for for us with with Mythwind we spent a crazy amount of time and money developing these these unique trays that that don't just act as like a storage component it it, it acts as the game so so your your whole play space each player gets one of these trays it's completely asymmetric right you might be the crafter I'm the farmer Andrew you might be the ranger um and and you each have this unique tray that you're playing your game in and then to to save the game because you know people can't leave the game out to save the game you just put the lid on and put it back in the box and so it's like this ongoing you know the game and so so yeah we, we we develop things to kind of fit the fit the necessity as we kind of push forward just because like no one had really developed trays this complex and, and i don't think that has even though they kind of look elegant and simple uh bryce our tray designer uh, i know it provided him many many headaches along the way so <laughs> yeah that's fantastic and you know I'm, I'm curious to know uh just for my own uh selfish reasons is bryce available for hire uh yeah sure um bryce at uh oh uh, blackmagicinserts.com i believe awesome. uh if you if you yeah. search black magic inserts um mm -hmm. and say brendan sent you you'll you'll be good to go that's good i think others listen to this podcast will appreciate that and we'll rewind to get that uh website and email address again perfect um because you know game trays is is the big uh you know the big name that people think of but i actually had in uh, deliverance i had somebody contact me that was 
a retired engineer that that was retired in his early 40s. Guy definitely worked for, you know, a, a company that is his job is classified, you know, <laughs> whether that's Apple, Google, you yeah. know, or the government or whatever. And he was an extremely talented insert designer. And so I really lucked out there. But um, oh my goodness, before him, it was like, I guess I'll have the factory design an insert. And I wasn't <laughs> super stoked about that. Yeah, you, you know, if, if you're doing something simple, um, like like just a basic box insert, like honestly, the, the factories have stepped forward their game, um, at least Longpack and E-Star, they're, they're actually, and, and sorry, and Panda. Um, they actually are all very competent with like standard insert. It's when you get into complex kind of really bespoke type stuff where it, it's nice to have have someone else. So Stone Saga has made some waves, uh, I think, in the industry. I know that we had Jamie Stegmar on and he was even talking about it. And he's like, I really like what they're doing over there, which is a oh, compliment to That's you. great. Thanks, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What was your sort of marketing strategy for Stone Saga and how how were you able to sort of catapult its success? Spend a lot of money. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Did it build off of one of the two audiences you had developed? Here, here's our timeline. Acarios was in manufacturing when we went to Kickstarter with Mythwind. So we 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 launched Stars of Acarios in March 2020, three days after the world shut down. Um, yeah. and pretty yeah wild right you know uh, we go from office to remote shipping prices go from what four thousand to fifteen thousand a container something stupid you know we we did that whole production fulfillment stuff we we didn't we didn't ask for for a single dollar more but we we were delayed in a few aspects and you know we had mythwind ready to go so we we launched mythwind before karyos had delivered which then just you know that you know just resulted in and some people not backing the game with stone saga you know karyos had been delivered and so we actually had a lot of returning backers you know stone saga is is a little bit heavier of a game than the mythwind it's it's really thematic and so we were able to kind of tap into existing fan base and kind of carry forward i think a big thing that that helped with the marketing and the the hook of stone saga is that it is is a heavily thematic game in 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 like all of its components there you know the what the vibe that we were trying to capture is is this this ongoing sense of of legacy and survival and so the, the I'm, I'm actually surprised that the cave painting idea is in the final game because that was like that was the original vision of the game I was like, wouldn't it be cool if we make this survival game that um, that at the end of each game, you kind of mark up this cave painting wall. And and then, you know, when you finish 10 games, you can kind of see a history of your people. Like that was that was my pitch to Max when I was like, hey, Max, do you want to like come design this game? And I pitched him that. And he's, <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah, that's great. Um, and then I was like, and then, you, you know, you, you sell Stone Saga to someone else. And then they open up this box and it's like they see that there's a people that have been here already. Like, like for me, that's just such a cool, unique experience. So I think that level of kind of thematic hook, Max and Luke are, are designers. Um, they, they brought on or through kind of the, all of the components, all of the different elements. And then, um, you know, uh, Taryn, our art director and Andrea, um, they really kind of elevated the game when it came to, uh, 
came to how the game looked, right? So yeah, it wasn't any one thing, I think. It was just kind of a combination. Kang Productions worked on your, your video and I, I think on his website he sort of features some YouTube influencer talking about the video. So he sort of features on his website because this particular influencer was impressed with the, the actual video. And it looks great, you know, this, this dice falling on the table yeah. and smashing and it's, you know, he did a great job with it. Ori's great. I, I remember I, I went to him and I was like, Ori, I, I don't want to do a video like every other Kickstarter video. And then I just like pitched him like a movie trailer. So if you watch, if you watch the Stone Saga video, you don't really know what's going on. Um, there's there's no voiceover. Uh, there's just like epic music, epic visuals. And like we <laughs> kind of tell a story with the different cave paintings and elements. But um, yeah, it was, it was really neat. Happy with how it turned out. Fantastic. And you know, there are a couple of questions I have in related relation to the Stone Saga and the, what you did in regard to marketing. Um, the first question is in, in relation to the trailer, and pretend you don't know Ori Kagan because we all, uh, well, the yeah. three of us on this podcast know him and really like him and think his work is fantastic. Was the trailer, did the trailer make you more money than you spent on it? Um, how did you leverage that trailer in with Stone Saga? Was it just the thing that you used on Kickstarter or did you use it elsewhere? And then how else did you spend money on Stone Saga mm. for marketing? Like, where did you spend it? You know, yeah. So I'm not good enough at tracking metrics to tell you if our video made more money than than um, than we spent on it. We we used it in many places, right? We we um, we spent uh, we we did some YouTube YouTube ads with it, also Facebook ads with it, like different kind of layers. We kind of Put, put it out everywhere so at, at the very least it's it's a good kind of eye-catching hype tool and that, and that's what we used it for to get people excited for it for us our, our our biggest marketing spend is always uh always facebook and instagram ads we we do a lot more than is probably suggested by most people in the industry as far as uh lead up to the advertising and so if people are on facebook or instagram they're probably sick of seeing our games, at least they're, if they're in our target audience, <laughs> because we we're, we're, we're probably always marketing year round, at least one of our upcoming launches. And, you know, that kind of kind of comes and goes. And, and you know, the, the, the standard practice in the industry is like, you know, a month or two beforehand, start kind of building up your, your pre-launch page. Um, we, we don't do that. Um, but I, you know, I'm always cautious of you know, advising others to kind of follow suit because, and you guys know, as you lead people into it, uh, uh, Facebook advertising can be a, a, a bottomless money suck, um, <laughs> right? Mark Zuckerberg Where, likes to take your money. Yeah. And, and if you're not, you know, if you're not confident in the final product that you're going to have at the end, it, it doesn't matter how many followers that you have throughout the process, or, or maybe you're, you don't have your messaging keyed in very well at the beginning. And so, um, it's, it's really hard to, uh, to, to advise people that, Hey, yeah, just, you know, spend thousands and thousands of dollars before you launch, you know, mm -hmm. um, for, for us, you know, we've, we've, we've been able to, like, we, we do a lot of like AB testing early on. Right. And this is, this is, you know, something that uh, anytime I'm on a, a podcast or talking to people, if they're wanting to make a game that sells, not just a game that they like. So, so there's two different things here, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of designers who have this idea of a game and they've been working on it for years and years and years and years. 
but they've never asked themselves the question, oh, will this game sell? Mm -hmm. um, and and it's more than that. It's like, who will it sell to? You know, it, where is there a product market fit for for this idea game I have? And, and those are two different questions. And, and oftentimes, more than one person needs to kind of be a, uh, asking those questions. But early on in in our in our product life cycle, if I have an idea, if if we have an idea for for a game, I'll I'll, uh, I'll set up a um, an ad. Like I have a couple fake um, Facebook pages where I'll just run, I'll run some AB testing on, on different ideas. Um, and I'll, I'll see our, I'll see our click through rates and, you know, I'll get them to sign up. I'll, I'll make some landing pages for games that don't exist. Um, and then I'll, I'll, I'll see, I'll see the click through rate and, uh, and the signups. And then, uh, you know, I can compare that against our, our previous campaigns and be like, okay, Hey, you know what? This is tracking pretty similar to stone saga. Good. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll double down. We'll start investing in development because we know that there is a, a market who is interested in in a game um at least a game that we're pitching right and that's that's what kickstarter is it's yeah. you, you know you're not selling a game that's been made um you know you're you're selling people like like a dream in a sense you're like mm -hmm. people like to uh, wolf tickets as somebody from northern california yeah. might say yeah well, well, <laughs> that's you know, what it and, feels like right well and and it's like no but as as a as a backer like i remember um backing the the original tainted grail campaign on kickstarter before game found and it was uh it was during christmas uh, my wife and i had, i think we had just gotten married and then we were at um, um yeah, i got kind of into like uh campaign board games which was lots of fun but we were at my my parents place for christmas and uh they were running the campaign over christmas and each day they were doing a different update and we were like so excited about like reading them That's and like cool. we were like <laughs> dreaming about you know you, you kind of place your aspirations onto this future product and people mm -hmm. do this in, in all types of games right and, and it's fun and then it's the job as the designers to kind of deliver on those um but that's not you know, that's not the job of the crowdfunding campaign. The job of the crowdfunding campaign is to make sure that there's a dream that people want and, and it's trying to tune into that. And I think that's, that's super small in terms of A-B testing using Facebook ads. I've done this as well as for personal projects. It's like, well, before I put a, a bunch of time and money into this, yeah. let me just run some ads quickly to see what the click-through rates are. And then does this actually have legs? I know, Andrew, you did this with Deliverance, but you didn't pay money. You just kind of just organically kind of put a test. Can yeah. I get this to like a thousand subscribers without paying any money? But I think it's it's the same concept where does this have legs before I really commit to this and start investing lots of time and money? And I do think for people who understand how Facebook ads work, Facebook's a great tool to use for that. Maybe to spend a couple of hundred dollars testing a couple of ideas and see, okay, which one should we mm -hmm. double down on? And I think that's a really smart idea, the use of Facebook ads and and like pre-design, pre-design stage. When people have money or when they take money and they're like, money is going to solve my problem. They, they approach oftentimes with a fail right from the beginning. Like they they presume something and base their money spend on this presumption. And you kind of touched on it earlier, which was they're making a game that they like or that they want to make. And they make this assumption that everyone else wants that thing because I want that thing. Everybody else wants that thing mm -hmm. too. And then with that presumption, they spend lots of money assuming that people want it or want it in that form. And I know, I mean, if, if I was wealthy and I had the means to spend a million dollars on deliverance before anybody knew about it, I'm sure that it would have come out faster than seven years 
But oh my goodness, it would not have been very good. Mm. I had to learn a lot about what people wanted and didn't want how to pitch the game and what kind of detracted what made it less interesting for players to to want to learn more. And the what your guy what you guys are talking about right now is a really smart way to spend money. So you're mm-hmm. investing a little bit to see you know, you so you come up, it's the scientific method. You come up with a hypothesis that says people will like this. You experiment and see if that hypothesis is true. You, you know, look at your data and analyze what you've done and determine, oh, the click-through rate was 5%. That's great. Or the click-through rate was 1%. That's not that good. Yep. Um, and I think that that's really, really smart. And by spending a little bit of money up front, you actually, you know, really testing that initial hypothesis instead of saying, you know, the thing that I want is what everybody else wants. Um, you spend a little bit of money testing that and end up saving yourself a ton of heartache potentially in the future. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think maybe the, the a point of clarity is that you see, uh, you see some products that have been like AB tested into oblivion and i think of a lot of the recent uh, marvel movies where where you know it's like a bunch of execs around a table being like oh hey this idea will sell let's put in this character blah 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 and and suddenly the the product that comes out on the other end is just like this faceless blob right how dare they release ant-man quantumania without Luis? i don't know (laughs) how you can do that as a fan like I rebel. Right. And then and then it has no character, right? And and so, you know, what what we what we do this for is really it is that. It's testing the original like pitch dream. You know, you you have a sentence to like capture people's attention and imagination. And it's like, can we do that well and effectively? And then and then we, you know, we we trust in our creative people and our creative process to deliver something that is unique and innovative and 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 is like creative, right? But and, and so, you know, I, I try not to like let this kind of filter into all the other decisions. It is really just this, you know, the the, the first part. Yeah, I think the key there is then to pivot to what is working and dive into that. And so, in talking about pivoting, I know that you pivoted your entire company from Oom Games. Maybe explain why was why was the reason behind that? Why, why why was that necessary? And you know why why rebrand? Why change directions? Yeah. So um, uh, for Stone Saga, I was watching all the reviewers, and um, we had like seven different pronunciations of, of Oom <laughs> Games, and I'm like, guys, this this is not a great way to build a brand. We had O O M M Oom. Um, games, whatever it is, right? Uh, and and then actually, out of my mind is is actually like what mm-hmm. what is yeah. anyways, uh, you know. And then if, if you look in our kind of in our backlog at at Oom Games, um, you'll see some other games like you'll see Last One Standing, Battle Bears, there, uh, No Escape, some other games that are you know really fun games, but they, they didn't fit with this kind of like new theme, new like really thematic first innovative uh, style of uh, design and and you know story narrative types of games like Akario, Smithwind, and Stone Saga. And so it just it just made sense for us to be like, okay, hey, this is this is our new identity. Um and and you know, we're we come up come coming up with a new name. So Open Owl Studios. We there's only one pronunciation of that. Easy peasy. Yeah. <laughs> and um and it gives it gives uh it gives our brand uh, you know there, there's a little bit more identity now. Be like, okay, people when they buy a game from us, they're gonna expect a thematic 
you know, kind of narrative world building first and, and, and hopefully, hopefully a game unlike any other game that they've experienced before, you know, and that's, and that's the hope as, as people come and, and interact with our games. So let's, uh, let's pivot again into kind of the, uh, the concept behind the, the old, or I will say the data distribution model of the yeah. hobby games industry and, you know, what you're doing with kind of what your experiences are that, that prompted you to do something like that. And then what you're doing to kind of disrupt that old model and provide something that publishers really need. Yes. You know, with, uh, with stars of Picarios, we, we did what a lot of people do, right. And, you know, order a few thousand extra copies, uh, hopefully do a lot of direct to consumer, maybe get picked up by some stores, all that stuff. And, and so we did, we did some limited distribution and this was, I think at the time that we actually brought, brought on you guys to, mm -hmm. to kind of come and, and help market our games. And, you know, we, we quickly ran into the issue where some of the games being sold through our distributor were, um, you know, were on Amazon for less price than what we had them for than on our website. And so we were spending money getting people onto our website and then they would go search Amazon and then buy it from someone that's not us. And so it's like, okay, yeah, we are making money, but it's like, you know, way less margin than if they bought it through us as we spend our ads and all that stuff. Right. So it was, it was definitely not ideal for us in that, in that sense. And then, you know, also it's inventory is no joke. There have been many companies that have, have been sunk with, with a, a bloated inventory, right. Uh, you know, spending money on production or on manufacturing, ho hoping that these games are going to sell one day, right? That's mm -hmm. it's kind of a scary hope. And it's not just like the one-time payment, but then you're paying, um, you're paying storage fees. You're, you know, there's, there's a lot of like fees on the back end. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then there's, so that there's a big risk, like question. So, you know, stepping out of Acarios, mm -hmm. Mythwind, we, you know, we, we placed our big order and we actually decided, um, to, to place zero extra boxes available after after our Kickstarter and partner fulfillment. So the game's gonna be in retail all across the world in virtually not virtually, but like seven other languages. But it won't be in retail in English unless the peop unless the retailers bought directly from us in the pre-order campaign leading up to uh to manufacturing. Um and and a big reason for this, well there's there's two. One um, we, we decided that like, Hey, you know what, we could probably sell a couple thousand units of Mythwind, but we, we don't want to carry that risk in the short term, but l more importantly, we're, we're planning on, on turning around and, and doing a Mythwind reprint campaign, um, pretty soon after we, we fulfill. And, and, and there's a couple of reasons for this. It's mainly so that the customer comes to us. Like we, 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 we love building a relationship with, with our backers. You know, we, 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 I think we do a decent job, you know, maybe not the best, but definitely not the worst. We communicate with them. Um, you know, I think we treat them with respect. And so we, we want to build up relationship with the customer, customer directly. If someone buys our game through, um, a retailer, yeah, maybe they come and join our discord channel, but, but more likely they don't, they just have the game, their isolated experience, you know, and then that you know, the chance of converting that person to a lifelong fan is, is a little bit smaller than them coming backing our game on Kickstarter. So we want to make sure that we capture as, as large of the market as our kind of direct customer through Kickstarter. So, so, so we're going to do that. 
And then um, kind of after that reprint campaign, that's probably when we're going to uh, do a, you know, we're going to do another big push with, with retailers and we'll, you know, we can talk about how, how we're going to do that, uh, that retailer push, but uh, you know, we're, we're going to try to get into larger retailers, maybe not like big box retailers, but just more retailers and, and, you know, classic distribution with our new kind of FLG stores, um, dot com way. And, uh, and so that's kind of our working mindset and, and, you know, we're, we're going to see how it goes, right. Um, you know, reprint campaigns seem to be a little bit all the rage right now. Um, it definitely is the best for, for publishers. Um, when you, when you think about, okay, who's like, where's the risk being carried and, and, and nobody wants to front the risk. Um, these days. And so, um, you know, that for, for us, that's a, it's a big potential solved. That's awesome. And when you say front the risk, we're talking about, you know, uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars to print a, a, an amount of units of a game that you think people will want and that you can sell. And that's, uh, you know, I, I remember a couple of years ago, stronghold games, which is, um, they, they do things like, uh, terraforming Mars. And another big one is like Aeon's End. Um, they so they have, a, but they have a lot of games. They just like come out with. They're in all sorts of languages and enter distribution immediately, and that's how they sell their a lot of their stuff. And I remember a couple of years ago, um, they just gave like a mystery box for fifty bucks. You can buy you buy a mystery box, and it's going to come with four games. And <laughs> I think that that actually worked pretty well for them, but it just liquidated their inventory of yeah. games that weren't selling otherwise. So I didn't buy in because I thought, well, you know, it's uh they're games that nobody wants in in my head, but mm-hmm. in actuality they might be really fantastic games that they just can't get traction for in one reason or, or for one reason or another. But um as you said earlier in our podcast, that can really sink a company. It's like mm-hmm. um you know, clothing companies are in the same boat where they have to have a bunch of different SKUs and they're not quite sure how many to buy of this size, that size, or the other size. And then in addition to that, how many of the moon shirt should we print? How many of the star shirt should we print or whatever? And um, you run into these problems where you're loaded with massive amounts of inventory, not sure what to, uh, what to sell. And what I've always loved about crowdfunding as well is that you basically get to pre-order. You get to pre-sell yeah. and gauge demand for product. And before you invest really the bulk of the money that you will have to in order to make it, which is manufacturing and freight and all of that, you can already have customers that have paid you for it. And, you know, the, the, the ideal is to, you know, ho- hopefully get that turnaround quicker. So, you know, people aren't, aren't out cash for, for long periods of time. Um, and, and, you know, to get people's games in your hands, but it is like, with the number of costs associated with, you know, making these big games, right? It's, it's not, it's not, it's not a cheap, like $2 card game, yeah. <laughs> um, the, the games that we make. And so there's just a lot of cost involved and, uh, and, you know, having that kind of direct, um, direct sale to, to our customers is, 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 is the best for us. And, and I, I think the best for our customer as well, actually. That's awesome. And so how does flgstore.com fit into what it is that we're talking about now? What problem yeah. does it solve? We have the big board game market, and then we have the hobbyist board gaming niche, which is a fraction of the larger board gaming market. And then uh, another kind of subdivision or another fraction of the niche is the crowdfunding community. The people who live 
and who back games on Kickstarter and GameFound. I, I don't have the numbers, but like, I don't know what percentage of, of hobbyist gamers that would be. Because I know there are many, many hobbyist gamers who, you know, are happy to go down to their friendly local gaming store and just pick up a pick up a game on the shelf, um, but they won't touch Kickstarter or or GameFound. Um, there's also many people who have just just been burnt um, by companies kind of mis mishandling projects, and so they're like, you know what? If it comes to retail, great. If it doesn't, I'm not even going to bother with it. So, you know, a, a part of my, you know, my hypothesis is that there is a large group of people who'd be interested in buying our games, but not interested in going through the kickstarting process, Kickstarter process. So, you know, maybe they'll buy direct on our website, but um, I think a lot of them have connections with their local retailers, local gaming stores. Um, and, you know, I was looking at our, uh, our Mythwind retailer numbers and we did like like it was, it was shocking to me, the number, like, I think we ended up doing like $150,000 in, in just retail orders. Wow. Um, I was like incredible. And, and we, we didn't, it's like, we, we didn't even push it. Um, in my mind, actually up until I, I knew that number, I was like, oh, screw retailers. We're just doing <laughs> everything's just direct, like retailers, like whatever, we'll just give them the, the, the group pledge discount, the, you know, the 10% yeah. off, then they can deal with that, you know, go, go the awakened realms model. You know, I saw that number and I'm like, okay, you know what, there's, there's something here. And then I, I started talking to, to some of our retailers and, and I quickly found out that the retailers, there, there's about 4,000 um, hobbyist retailers in Canada and United States. Decent number. The, the ones who deal with Kickstarter, it's almost like a part-time job because mm -hmm. you, you, you like put on the retailer hat for, for, for a moment. As a retailer, you, you, you know, maybe you're on Kickstarter, you're browsing through Kickstarter, you find a couple games cool, and then you kind of maybe command F retailer pledge, you find that you then go to a, uh, to a sheet, you fill out a form, you wait for an email from the publisher, and then the publisher gives you a, a rate. And then as a retailer, then you have to wait until the, the pledge manager, then you go into the pledge manager and, and you do an order in the pledge manager and maybe you pay for shipping then, but most likely you'll, you'll be charged for shipping at a later date. And then, so mm -hmm. you'll wait for another email. Okay. So that for me sounds like a headache. Yeah. <laughs> and that was not at all exaggerated. <laughs> not at all exaggerated. Multiply that by every game you purchase. It's not even just every publisher you purchase from. Because right now of a game. Yeah, for six units of a game. So because because every every game has its own system. Every game has its own store. Um, right? Even on a pledge manager, the like if you go to Game Pound, if you go to Backerkit, it's all isolated per game. You can't put two copies of Stone Saga into your cart and then go to Mythwind Pledge Manager, put those two copies into your cart. It's 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 everything is its own isolated process. I was talking to one retailer, they do um, like like $750,000 of retail sales are on track for this year, like one retailer. Um, and he was mentioning he has like 260 active Kickstarter projects right now. He has this massive spreadsheet. He's hired part time by this uh, retailer just to do Kickstarter orders. Um, and he has this massive spreadsheet, you know, being like, okay, Hey, I paid these, these guys have these terms, you know, these guys. Are so just insane. And, you know, thinking about that and you're like, okay, out of the 4,000 hobbyist stores that are, are, you know, purchasing games from, from crowdfunding companies, like, well, like, how many, like it, it's gotta be less than 10% because 
people don't have the time <laughs> for that. Mm -hmm. And then if they are, maybe it's just for the big ones. Maybe it's just for the frost haven. Maybe it's just for, you know, those really, you know, too many bones, like the really big flashy campaigns that, that do like 5 million plus. And, um, and so, you know, that's, that kind of got me thinking like, Hey, what, what's an easy way? Because I feel like this problem has been solved in every other industry. Why not our industry? And so FL, FLG store is, is basically the hub that sits between publishers and retailers. Uh, so, so a publisher as a publisher, you can go there, you can list your products, you know, think of it a little bit like an Amazon or an Etsy situation where you have kind of complete control over your store, over your pricing, all that stuff. And then the retailer, they sign up, they get verified, and then they can just shop the store as if they're shopping any other store. So they can just fill up their cart with all these items and get the proper wholesale discount and then do a single checkout. And then they can actually keep track of all of their orders on one um on on one kind of profile so they can kind of see the status and see whether they're fulfilled unfulfilled partially paid not partially paid um you know fully paid um so it's like a lot of neat things and then you know i'm talking about risk before uh, another uh um another group that that hates to front risk would be retailers so i know for us we we ask for retailers for a hundred percent payment upfront. um and then, you know, we charge them shipping at a later date. So that is 60% on MSRP, um, which, you know, if they're doing a sizable order, we had, we had a, like, uh, this is really fortunate for us, but I think it was like 401, I don't know, a, a really big company. Um, we had like a, a 20 or $30,000 order just come in and I'm sitting there and, and you, you know, it was just placed on a credit card. I'm like, wow, this company just is willing to like, willing to not have $30,000 to spend for the next year. I'm like, like who, who has like, which stores have the luxury to, to do that? Like, like few stores, right? That's like, that's like rent payments probably for a full year for, for most retail stores. <laughs> um, so with, with, uh, with FLG store, you know, we, we have a, a pre-order kind of deposit system. So I think, you know, if I'm looking at the, uh, the, the bundle for, for stone saga right now, yeah, so the Stone Saga, um, you know, it costs two hundred and fifty bucks um, for for uh, for just a backer. Uh, retailers get forty percent off of that, and then they pay they pay a fifteen percent deposit. So you know, they pay twenty two dollars for a deposit of one Stone Saga All In pledge. Um, they're going to be charged the the full amount upon um, before we enter into manufacturing, um, but all they have to do is pledge a deposit, and then they'll wait until then. And so we, you know, we're trying to like help that, you know, close that loop. So it's better for everyone as more publishers join, more retailers will join. And so you get this kind of, um, growing side from, from both ends where it does benefit everyone where, you know, uh, publishers, you know, they're the, the fee to use this as the same fee as using backer kit or, or, or pledge manager or, or game found. And then retailers, they, they can manage all their orders in one spot. And it's not just for pre-orders. We, we have, um, if you have existing inventory, we, you know, you have the option to list that as well. Um, and, uh, right now we've, we're, we're, we're kind of forcing publishers to, to list whatever the price is to be like, uh, to have shipping included in that price. And so retailers can can kind of instantly see, hey, this is the price we're going to pay for the game, and then we we can get that uh, soon. Um, so you know, the, the the plan is to. My original hope for it was that kind of pre-order crowdfunding space, but you know, I, I think we have like twenty or so publishers joined. Um, a lot of them 
uh, brought on kind of existing inventory in, in the hopes of moving that, right? Because we're, we're going to bring our, you know, our, our retail list of a couple hundred people to this platform. And then, you know, the, the hope is that other publishers also bring their retail list and, right, we can just kind of grow this uh, organically so that, um, you know, maybe, maybe the, you know, the 10% of the 4,000 stores right, that are active, they'll jump on this. But because the system is going to be easy to use, you know, that the, the hope would be that we actually like elevate. And so, um, you know, wh why can't we capture more of those 4000 stores, right, they have a single place to go to, they can, you know, pre order all the games that they want, they can, um, you know, order all these maybe indie esque games, and then um, publishers have kind of complete control where where we're you know we can sell what we want we can pre-order what we want we can list the price as what we want no one's saying hey list it for 40 percent of msrp or, or whatever it is you you know the publisher can kind of control what what they want for that and in terms of publishers jumping on board do you have like a vetting process and then the, so that maybe follow up to that what time frame should people be thinking of being listed uh you know pre-campaign post-campaign where about when should they really start thinking about joining joining this yeah, I think um, whenever they would be accepting pre-orders from retailers um, uh, to get on board, you know, some companies wait till after the after the crowdfunding campaign. Um, others uh, do it during the crowdfunding campaign. Um, either way, uh, they can go on. Are pretty easy to join. Uh, so yeah, you you are kind of um, there, there's an invitation, and then um, um, it's 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 vetted in a sense. Um, but the, 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 the main betting process is, is just like, it's a per product, um, before a product goes live, it's, it's just quickly vetted, um, and then, and then it goes live. Um, but, uh, you know, the, you know, that really the people that need to be vetted more are the retailers. And so mm -hmm. we have a few different options as far as, uh, you know, retailers have to specify where they sell it, right. Um, if they're selling third party online stores or just physical, and then we're setting up filters for, for publishers to, um, you know, publishers can prevent their games, you know, we will have it so they can prevent their games from being sold on, you know, on Amazon, eBay, you know, third party stuff, um, as a part of their kind of like, who do we sell to? Um, so there's like, there's a couple kind of like steps that we're, we're working through there. But you know, that's, that's the goal. That's awesome. And I'm actually really excited for it. I think it will be a great tool that that can maybe actually free up some, like bandwidth for everybody on all sides. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, as a publisher of right now, just one single game, it, it sounds like if I were to kind of invest myself into this one a little bit and it pays off, then I'm a big winner. But if, you know, I, I guess, uh, it, there's no really harm in, in listing. So it's like, I, I feel like I'm not going to lose anything by listing. And then I stand to gain quite a lot. And so, so last, last kind of question, bringing us in for a landing, and you know how can people find you is it just the website um you know where where will people go to sign up for this um you know people can find me facebook um uh i'm not like super active on social media but you know openowlstudios.com if you want to follow along to our projects there's a newsletter that you can opt into you know you'll you'll see kind of our releases coming up um and if you want to you know, as if you're a retailer, if you're a publisher and you're interested in flgstore.com, you can 
you can go in and sign up as a publisher or as a retailer. Um, FLGstore.com, we've said it enough. <laughs> it's, it's, it's right at the top. You'll you'll see it in, in, in the header. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm around, uh, I guess, mainly Facebook and our Facebook groups and stuff. But Excellent. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for joining us and uh, spending time talking about all the things. I'm really excited about FLG Store. And, you know, as, as a friend of mine would say, good luck with everything else you got going on. <laughs> awesome. Hey, thanks, guys. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.